Farrah Frada was just 33 years old when she was shot twice in the head at close range in her own garage. Her husband, Bob, a police officer, and their three children were attending a church service at the time of the attack. When the investigators found out the couple were in the midst of an ugly divorce concerning Bob's strange sexual proclivities, attention turned toward Bob. Was he guilty of murder for hire? Welcome to Twisted Travel and True Crime. I'm your host, Sandy. Thanks for listening and sharing this podcast with your friends. Thanks to your requests, I'm excited to tell you that I finally got a Patreon account set up. Please check it out and let me know what you think. Today's case takes us to the state of Texas in the U.S. Their motto is, don't mess with Texas. And this is certainly true when it comes to murder. Texas executes far more people than any other state and does so at a pace that has no parallel in the modern era of the death penalty. On November 9, 1994, Farrah Frada left home to get her hair done. Her trip to the hairdresser was quieter than normal because her three children weren't with her as they normally were. It was a rare moment of peace in her life. After a quick haircut, she passed on the offer for a blow-dry and a style in order to be home in time to meet her kids. At 8 p.m., her neighbors, the ones who lived directly across the street, saw her come and back into the garage. Then they heard a loud popping noise. They turned to look, and when they did, they heard a scream and saw Farrah fall. Then they heard another shot. They saw Farrah laying on the ground by her car. When she didn't get up, they called 911. While they were making that phone call, they watched on as a man emerged from hiding. He stood up, walked to the curb, looked around, and then returned to the side of the house. They would later tell police that the man was wearing black clothing and was either a black man or he was white and had black makeup on. He wasn't very tall, and he had a very round head. Two minutes later, a small silver car with a broken headlight drove up. The man got into it, and it drove away. The neighbor ran across the street to where Farrah was laying next to her car. It was dark, so he decided to pull his car into Farrah's driveway so his headlights would illuminate the area. He found her body there, laying in a pool of blood. Her eyes were open, and she was taking deep, swelling breaths, but she wasn't responsive. He couldn't help her, so he made the sign of the cross on her forehead and waited for paramedics. Farrah's parents, Lex and Betty Backer, were just sitting down to a nice hot meal that Betty had prepared for the both of them. The phone rang. It was about two minutes after eight o'clock. One of Farrah's neighbors called them with the news that Farrah had been ambushed and shot. She had taken two bullets to her head. They jumped into their car and drove as fast as they could. When they arrived at Farrah's house, the place was lit up. An officer was trying to stop them from entering the crime scene. When they explained who they were, they were allowed to approach. When they reached Farrah, she was still alive and face up, but she was having convulsions. One of the paramedics told them she had lost a lot of blood and suggested that they hurry and go to the hospital. Farrah was on her way there, and she was dying. The paramedics brought her to where a helicopter could land to life-flight her to the hospital. Her parents met the responders at the hospital, but Farrah was pronounced dead in the emergency room. Her parents, in shock, refused to believe that she was dead and stood there and kept staring at their daughter. Her eyes were open and unblinking. As reality set in, her father reached up, 
and gently closed her eyes. Her body was cold to the touch, and the pain he felt in that moment was indescribable. Then anger set in. The first thing out of her father's mouth was, Where is that son of a bitch? He was referring to their daughter's estranged husband, Robert Frada. They'd been married for 11 years, but were involved in a messy divorce and a painful custody battle over their three children. The trial was scheduled to take place in less than three weeks, and if it happened, the judge would have heard about the collapse of a once-happy relationship. Farrell was born on August 5, 1961, in Guilford, Surrey, England. Her parents described their baby girl as full of life and very social. She would go on to attend Newman High School in Croydon, South London. After high school, she went to college, which she finished. Then she decided she wanted a career in the travel industry. She worked for a travel agency in Croydon for a year, where she was beloved by her employer and fellow co-workers. During this time, she met a man, one she'd become engaged to. In 1981, she turned 20, and Farah's parents moved to Houston, Texas. Even though Farah was already engaged to the man in Croydon, she decided to follow her parents to the United States. She had an extremely close relationship with them, especially her father. Within a week of moving to Houston, she was applying to several airlines in the city. Just a week later, American Airlines would offer her a position as a ticketing agent. Her charismatic personality, charm, and versatility helped her excel at her job and she got along really well with her co-workers and supervisors there as well. It was at this job that she would meet Robert Frada. He thought she was kind and friendly, and she fell in love with his bodybuilder good looks and charm. This was in spite of all the other girls at her job telling her to be careful when it came to Bob Frada. He'd been married twice already and was considered to be a player. Despite the warnings, Farah fell hard for him. She broke off her engagement to her fiancé back in England. Soon, the couple would marry, and in quick succession, they would have three young children. Farah loved her husband deeply, and was willing to do just about anything to keep her and her family together and under one roof. It was obvious to everyone how family-oriented she was. She kept in constant contact with her extended family and friends, no matter where they lived. Every holiday and every birthday, Farah wouldn't forget to send a card and wish her family and friends happiness and good cheer. But the people who mattered most to her were her children and her husband. Well, at least it was that way for many years. But over a period of 11 years, their relationship had been deteriorating. To the outside world, Bob Frada was an upstanding citizen. He worked in public safety as both a police officer and a fireman. He doted on his three children, but there was a different side to Bob. Behind closed doors, he was mentally and emotionally abusive to Farah. He had multiple affairs and would frequent gay bars. He liked threesomes with men and women. He pressured Farah into participating, even though she didn't want to do them, and they left her feeling like she wasn't enough. She tried to keep him happy even getting plastic surgery, including breast implants and a nose job. But he still wasn't good enough for her, and he told her so. He openly told her she was boring in bed. He wanted those three ways, but his desires didn't stop there. 
He also enjoyed caprophilia, or scatophilia, which means he got sexual arousal and pleasure from feces. If that disgusts you, don't listen to the next part. It's reported that in addition to watching people defecate and playing with feces, he also liked to eat it. Now that I've completely lost my appetite, I can tell you that Farah lost her appetite for Bob, too. She was no longer a consenting adult who enjoyed the same things he did. She had tried her best to save her marriage, but in time, Bob's sexual demands and affairs crossed the line. She filed for divorce in 1992 and cited that the reason for divorce was his deviant sexual proclivities. Robert was pissed. It seems to me like he was less concerned about the divorce than he was about the fact that his sex life and preferences would be shared with people he didn't want them shared with, and that these things were soon going to be part of public record. He was an officer of the law, after all, and image is important. Farah had detailed all of Bob's sexual desires in her divorce papers, and this made him very angry. His anger scared Farah. She realized she had to get away from him, so she threw him out of the house, and as the court date approached, she seemed more and more on edge. She asked a friend named Kitty if Kitty thought Bob would ever have her murdered. She had a very good reason to be scared of Bob. Months before her murder, Farrah called 911 in a panic. When police arrived at her house, she was upset and crying. She had been laying in bed and a man came into her house. He had a mask on and stunned her with a stun gun. The attacker had broken in through a window and attacked her right in front of her children. Her oldest was only seven years old. He said he woke up to his mother screaming and had no idea what was going on. All he knew was his mother was in danger and something wasn't right. Her five-year-old son Daniel remembers screaming and crying outside the door, saying, Let our mommy go. Leave her alone. Whoever the man was, he fled, leaving Farah injured and her children terrified. He was never caught but Farrah suspected the intruder was a friend of Bob's. The police tended to believe her, but without concrete proof, all they could do was warn their co-worker, Officer Bob, to leave her alone, which they did. Four months later, Farrah is killed. On the night of her death, Bob arrived home about 30 minutes after Farrah had been shot. His older son remembers pulling up to the house and seeing all the lights and crime scene tape around the property. He remembers his father being surprised by the scene. Bob told the officers on scene that he'd been at church with his three children. The officers told him that Farah was taken to the hospital, so he called and spoke with someone there. He said, I need to know if she's alive or dead. I have her kids here. Do I need to bring them in to say their goodbyes? According to the witness that took this call, Bob sounded very matter-of-fact, cut and dry. Police at the crime scene said Bob didn't show any sadness, concern, or surprise over his wife's death. To the contrary, he seemed very confident and composed. He was well in command of the situation. They searched his car, and he told police he wanted to expedite the matter, because he had his kids with him. He told them he thought he should take them to the hospital to see their mother before she died. He also mentioned that he was hungry. 
When the police searched his vehicle, inside the glove box, they found a pistol and an envelope containing $1,050 in cash. When they told him they needed to question him further, he made arrangements for a neighbor to watch the children while he went in for the interview. He didn't leave the police station for almost 15 hours. During this time, they checked out his alibi, which was pretty hard to beat. Plenty of people saw him in church with his children while his wife was being murdered. Bob definitely wasn't at the scene and couldn't have killed her, but they suspected he had something to do with it. That thousand dollars in the glove compartment was strange. Bob explained the money was for payment for new carpeting that he planned to buy, but the excuse didn't settle comfortably in the investigator's ears. His time under interrogation didn't do him any favors either. Detective Larry Davis asked Bob a question that night, and the way he answered it stuck in the detective's mind. Detective Davis said, Bob, what should happen to somebody that killed somebody? And the response was, they should go to jail forever. Then the detective asked, what should happen to somebody that has their wife killed? And Bob's response was, it depended on the circumstances. Detective Davis said he knew right then that Bob killed his wife, but he had to prove it. Bob's behavior bothered Detective Davis, too. He seemed happy-go-lucky, looking straight at the camera smugly while wearing a shit-eating grin. That pun was 100% intended. Bob was confident that he was going to get away with murder, and the authorities had to let him go, even though they believed they were letting a killer walk free. The next morning, when the children woke up, they had to be told that their mother had been murdered and that their father was the prime suspect. Bradley, seven years old at the time, remembers asking for his mother and being told she had died. He cried for hours, wondering why this happened to him and why it had to happen to his mother. He felt every day for five years or more that he would wake up and it was all going to be a dream. His brother Daniel, who was six, needed comfort too. All three children were deeply affected by their mother's death, but Amber, the youngest at four, seemed to have it the worst. Every night at bedtime, she cried hysterically for her mom. She begged her grandma and grandpa for help. She tugged on their clothes, asking them to open the box. By box, she met her mother's casket. She was too young to understand the concept of death and wanted to see her mama one more time. Farrah's parents were in mourning, too, but they had to move forward. Bob had been released by police and was now trying to get custody of his children. Farrah's parents had a battle to face. They were fighting for their grandchildren with a man they believed killed their daughter. They were afraid that if they let Bob have them, he would take them, and they'd never get to see their grandchildren again. Detectives had been following Bob, finding out where he went, and then paying those places a visit. One place he particularly enjoyed was the gym. He was heavily into bodybuilding and spent a lot of time there. It was at his gym that Detective Davis heard some interesting conversations that Bob had been having about his wife. A man named Mike Edens, who regularly worked out with Bob, told police that Bob said he was going to find a way to knock Farrell off. He asked Mike if he knew anyone that would be willing to kill her. Mike laughed the comment off. 
He didn't think Bob was serious. He'd said it in kind of a joking way and thought maybe he was just trying to blow off steam because he was frustrated by the divorce. Besides, Bob was a cop and an all-around good guy. Incredibly, Bob didn't just talk to Mike. I don't know what kind of gym this was, but according to 17 different men, they all said pretty much the same thing. One of the men, named Jimmy, reported that Bob had asked if he knew anyone who would kill his wife, and it seemed that was pretty much all he wanted to talk about to Jimmy and everybody else. It became quite clear to police that Bob had a motive to kill Farah, and he'd put some thought into how to have her killed. He told the men at his gym that he had a list of her daily activities and that he was going to solicit a gang member. He'd buy a gun that they could use. None of these buddies thought of calling the police, but they all joked around with each other about how angry Bob was. They never thought he'd actually do it. One man said he had a bit of a stronger feeling that he was serious when Bob mentioned a sum of maybe one to two thousand dollars he'd pay someone to kill his wife. But, if this man told the police, who were Bob's friends and co-workers, they probably wouldn't believe him, and they'd probably laugh at him. So the red flags were flying everywhere, but his friends didn't see them or didn't report them. They blew it off as Bob just being Bob because he was such a kind and likable guy. In hindsight, they realized he was serious. One of the men told police that Bob mentioned if he was going to kill Farah, He'd pay some of the money up front and get the rest from a life insurance policy. Police thought they better follow up on that tip, and a few days after the murder, they found out that Bob had called the insurance agency that held the policy. He became angry and hung up on the representative he was speaking to when he found out that since Farah's death had been a homicide, the insurance company would not immediately pay out. Detectives also followed up at the church where Bob and the kids had been when Farrah was murdered. It wasn't unusual for them to attend church, but it was unusual that night because although Bob had spent some time in the church pews, he spent more time on his phone. Individuals in the church's office saw him repeatedly use the phone between 7.30 and 8. One of them even reprimanded him several times for answering the church phone without identifying himself as part of the church. It was very obvious he was using the phone for personal business. Even seven-year-old Bradley remembers his father being on the phone. His beeper kept going off, and he'd get up to return the calls. Police were sure they were onto something there, and whoever was on the other end of the phone calls was probably the killer. When they traced the calls, they were led to a woman they had never heard of before. Her name was Mary Gipp. Detective Davis interviewed her, but she was not cooperative and wouldn't tell them anything. She was described as a witch and a smart aleck and worse. The investigators were sure she was hiding something big. They thought she was the key to the case, and this thought grew legs when they found out that Mary Gipp's boyfriend, Joseph Prystash, was an ex-con and he had spent time working out with Bob at the gym. Tight-lipped Mary Gipp kept quiet. The detective knew he had to find some way to make her talk. It was obvious she was involved because she'd spoken with Bob in the hours before and right after the murder, but that's all they knew. Until she decided to come clean, Bob was free. 
He had his eyes set on his children, but he had a lot of hoops to jump through. A social worker monitored his visits and tried to help the children cope with their mother's murder. This social worker, named Judy Cox, tried to explain to the children what had happened and what was going to happen. The youngest, if you remember, she's only four, asked the most questions. She asked Judy if she knew that bad guys put bullets in her mom's head. Judy was at a loss as to what to say in response. She simply admitted that she did. The police kept a close eye on the children, and on Bob. They were worried he might try to take them and run, especially now that he was under scrutiny. They were also very clear with Bob that they were on to him. Outwardly, the police officer, firefighter, bodybuilder, and possible murderer was as cocky as ever. According to 48 Hours, they shalt not kill. It was almost daily that Detective Davis and Bob would have the same conversation. It went like this. Hey, Larry, am I going to jail today? And Detective Davis would respond, Not today, Bob. Soon, but not today. That day seemed like it would never come, because Mary Gipp was as quiet as ever. In a plot to make her start talking, prosecutors hauled her in to present her to a grand jury. They would decide if there was probable cause to put her on trial. When she realized she was going to be charged with murder, she decided very quickly she needed to tell them what she knew. Within hours, she made a deal. If she'd cooperate, she wouldn't be prosecuted. She'd be given immunity for her testimony, and she told them everything she knew. She said that her boyfriend, Joe, knew Bob from the gym and was hired by him to set up the murder. Joe got a neighbor involved. The neighbor would be the one to do the killing, and Joe would be the middleman slash driver. That next-door neighbor was 18-year-old Howard Guidry. He'd be paid $1,000 for killing Farah. Joe would drive Howard to the murder scene and pick him up afterwards. They'd use Mary's cell phone to tell Bob when the job was done. The plan was simple. Bob would take the kids to church, Farah would get her hair done, and the two men would wait for her at home. When she got back, they'd kill her. Mary knew about the plan and the murder the whole time and never called police. She could have saved Farah's life. When asked why she didn't call, her response was, I could have. I really just didn't want to deal with it, to be honest with you. I know that sounds disgusting, but it's easier not to do anything than confront it and say, okay, this is going down. I just didn't want to be a part of it. I suppose her honesty is refreshing, but I feel like her personal motto is, apathy could be a real problem, but who cares? Hindsight is twenty twenty, and I realize that some of those people thought that Bob was kidding, but at this point, I think we're up to 21 people, 17 men from the gym, plus Mary, Joe, Howard, and Bob, who had the opportunity to do the right thing and stop Farrah's death. There were four, including Bob, who 100% could have put a stop to the murder. Farah could have still been alive, and those three kids would still have a mother. While Joe and Howard were killing Farah, Mary was at home watching ice skating and anxiously waiting for her boyfriend to return. 
Bob was at church, pulling the strings of his puppets, in between pretending to pray, or worse, praying that he'd get away with murder. When Joe got home, Mary asked if Farah had died, and Joe said yes, and Mary asked him how he knew. He said, because I was there and I saw her. Then Joe and Mary had sex. I may have kink-shamed coprophiliacs, but I unequivocally will kink-shame anyone who's turned on by murder. When Farrah's parents found out that Mary was given immunity, they were angry. They thought she had the soul of a monster, or a demon, or maybe even the devil himself. They thought she should be six feet underground instead of their daughter. Those are their words, not mine. But without her, the prosecutors wouldn't have had a strong enough case against Bob. With Mary, it wasn't just her testimony. She had collected evidence herself. When Joe left her house after the murder, he left the gun with Mary. She wrote down all the information that she could find on the gun and kept it. This included the serial number. She couldn't give a reason as to why she did that, but she did. After she got immunity, she gave police the serial number she had written down, and they ran it immediately. That's when they learned that the gun had been purchased by their number one suspect, Robert Allen Frada. Yes, the dummy used his own gun. Even more unbelievably, the police didn't have to look far for the gun. It was right under their noses, in one of their own evidence rooms. It had been used in a bank robbery right after the murder, and luckily for detectives, the bank robber had been caught with it. He was in jail, and his name was Howard Guidry. Eighteen-year-old Howard knew he was in trouble. It wasn't long before he confessed to everything. He took the police to the murder scene and showed them exactly what happened. He said he agreed to kill Farah for a thousand dollars, which he was to receive immediately after the murder. On the night of the shooting, Joe gave Howard a cell phone and a gun. He then drove Howard to the grocery store near Ferris' house. After checking to make sure the payphones worked, they drove past the scene of the crime. Howard got out of the car, climbed over a fence into the backyard, and hid in the children's playhouse. While he waited, he used the cell phone to call Joe, Joe had returned to the nearby grocery store to wait. After 20 minutes, Howard called Joe again, and soon after, Farah pulled her car into the driveway. At this point, Howard got out of the playhouse and stood next to the garage. When Farah opened the garage door, he stepped inside and pointed his gun at her. He shot her once in the head and turned to leave, but realized she was still moving, so he turned and shot her again, before exiting the garage. He went back to the playhouse and called Joe. He then moved to a small bush at the side of the garage, and in about 30 seconds, Joe arrived to pick him up. He got into the car and turned the cell phone and gun over to Joe, but later, Joe would give the gun back to Howard and told him to dispose of it. Howard said he was never paid for the murder. On March 13, 1995, the police took Joe into custody. He would sign a written confession that was generally consistent with Howard's. They had enough to take Bob to trial. Both Howard and Joe were charged with murder. They fingered Bob, and five months after the crime, 
he was arrested and charged with murdering the mother of his three beautiful children. Proving that he did it would be harder than prosecutors thought. By the time the trial began, Howard and Joe said their confessions were coerced. They withdrew them and refused to testify. To back up Mary's details of the conspiracy, prosecutors would have to call one witness who saw Bob making all those phone calls the night of the murder. They had no choice but to call seven-year-old Bradley to testify against his own father. In the prosecution's mind, he was still a baby, and they didn't want to scar him for life, but they had to have his testimony. He had to tell the truth to the courtroom, in front of his dad, knowing that what he said would hurt his father, who he loved deeply. At the trial, Mary, with lips now loosened by immunity, told the court what she knew. She had learned that Joe agreed to his part in Farrah's murder in return for a jeep and a thousand dollars. On the day the murder was scheduled to occur, she left work early because she couldn't concentrate. She said she went home to call Farrah and tell her about the murder, but since she didn't know Farrah's last name, she couldn't contact her. I wish you guys could hear my eyes rolling. Mary also told the court the day after the murder that Joe had replaced the broken headlight on his car. The combination of Mary and young Bradley's testimony worked. Bob was convicted of murdering his wife. It took the jury less than an hour, and he was sentenced to death alongside Joe and Howard. The prosecution celebrated and were relieved that justice had been done. But it's never that easy. Thirteen years after the murder, a federal judge threw out Bob's conviction and ordered a new trial to set off a new round of legal battles. The judge believed that Bob was a terrible man, but he also believed that there was testimony linking him to the murder that shouldn't have been admitted, and because of this, there was a real chance that Bob could be set free. By this time, Bob's daughter, Amber, was 18. It was her senior year. Instead of thinking about college and prom, she was forced to think about her father's second murder trial. Over the previous 13 years, she built up a strong dislike of her father. She was worried he would come to her and she'd be put in a harmful situation. She believed he was a psychopath. Daniel, Bob's middle child, held a lot of anger as well. He would see other kids with their dads and moms, and he was always jealous and angry that he didn't have his parents. He was teased. He remembered being hurt because one kid said, Ha ha, I have a mother and you don't. He punched that kid. And as he got older, he had trouble controlling his anger, which he directed towards his father. For Bradley, the oldest child, he had a hard time wrapping his mind around the fact that he had happy times with his mom and dad, before his mom's murder. To this day, he's not a 100% sure that his father was the one who orchestrated his mother's murder. That little bit of doubt that comes so easily to families who are blindsided by the actions of their loved ones is what Bob's new lawyers were trying to plant in the minds of the courtroom the second time around. The appeals court threw out a lot of the crucial evidence, like the confessions of his co-conspirators, so the key to the defense for the second trial would be all those workout buddies who thought Bob was joking when he talked about killing his wife. His lawyer said, They thought he was kidding for a good reason, 
and that's because he actually was kidding. They argued that Bob wasn't involved at all. Joe saw an opportunity to kill Farah and blackmail Bob, and that was why they'd been phoning each other that night at the church. The prosecuting team thought this theory defied logic. Who would commit a crime at that level without the promise of some kind of benefit? It made no sense. Bob's defense also believed that they could explain the serial number that Mary had copied off the gun, which led police directly to Bob. What they proposed was that the police already had the gun in custody and that they told Mary to write the numbers down. In other words, they manufactured evidence. His defense team basically said there's no evidence that proves Bob hired anybody and there's no proof that money ever exchanged hands. The worst part of the second trial was that Farah's family had to essentially relive her murder all over again. It took two days of deliberation before a verdict was rendered. The jury found Bob guilty of capital murder for the second time. Now they had to decide whether or not to send him back to death row. Amber was scared to death of Bob. She agreed to take the stand during the sentencing to ask jurors to send her own father to the death chamber. She explained to the jury that her mom wasn't there for her first day of school, for her first kiss, and she wouldn't be there for the birth of her grandchildren. Days later, the jury came to a decision. Bob would be going to death row. He appealed his conviction without success. Nearly 30 years after his wife was taken, Bob's lawyers would legally challenge the state of Texas. This was for extending the use-by dates of its lethal doses of pentobarbital. This is the only drug used in Texas executions. They would often retest its potency before use. Several defense attorneys have slammed the practice, claiming the testing is done incorrectly. They believe the drugs had caused painful deaths that violate the U.S. Constitution's prohibition of cruel and unusual punishment. Still, the Texas Department of Justice has continued to use the expired drugs because fewer pharmacies have been willing to supply drugs for executions. In a last-minute attempt to save his life, Bob asked the court system to ban the Texas Department of Criminal Justice from using the expired drugs in his execution, which was to take place on January 10th of this year. That's just a few days ago if you're listening to this on its release date. On the morning of the day of his scheduled death, a stay of execution was filed in the hopes of delaying his death sentence. Shortly after the originally scheduled execution time of 6 p.m., the Texas Court of Criminal Appeals denied Bob's final appeal and allowed his execution to proceed. He walked the hallways from his cell to the death chamber, knowing it was the last trip he would ever make on his own two feet. He was strapped in and waited for death, which came quickly and silently. He was 65 years old, and his execution was attended by Farah's brother and one of Bob's own sons. Bob chose not to give a final statement, only saying amen after a spiritual advisor's prayer for mercy and forgiveness. The two other men involved in the murder are still on death row. If you enjoyed this episode, please take a quick minute to give it a good rating and review. If your podcast platform won't let you, 
please feel free to pop on over to Twisted Travel and True Crime on Facebook and leave a review there. You can see the podcast on other social media, including Instagram and TikTok, too. And if you'd like to support me and the podcast financially, which would be amazing, you can do so by clicking on one of the links in the show description. There are options there for a one-time donation or monthly donations through Patreon. I'm so grateful to have your ears for this episode. Thank you, and to all of you, I'd like to wish you fair winds and following seas, and safe travels of all kinds. <laughs>